1: As you know, True Crime Fan Club is on Patreon. We have a new show on there called TCFC Prime, where you get to hear the topic of your choice. This month's story covers Francine Hughes, and I'm going to play a five-minute preview for you. If you want to hear the rest of Francine's story, head to patreon.com slash tcfcpod. Francine Hughes was born in 1947 in Kentucky to Walter and Hazel Moran. Her parents had been married in 1938 when Hazel was only 14, and eight pregnancies followed. However, the first two babies died in infancy. Francine was the third surviving child. Walter and Hazel were hard Scrabble parents. Walter worked in onion fields, which paid 30 to 50 cents an hour. Hazel worked in the same fields for a short period of time before becoming a waitress. The family did the best they could, and Hazel explained to Francine that they were poor, but proud, better than the shiftless poor. Francine recalled being five when they had moved to Kentucky to Michigan. The family went out one afternoon to purchase winter coats for Francine and her siblings. Walter and his brother had purchased a big bag of candy for the kids and liquor for themselves. When they got home, they left the packages in the car, the next morning, the car and everything inside had burned up. Apparently, a lit cigarette was left in the car. Francine grew into a pretty young lady who was self conscious about her looks, her figure, and her clothes. When she was 15, she met 18 year old James Hughes, who went by Mickey. He was good looking, tall, slender, and had arresting blue green eyes. Mickey and his four brothers were already known to the police as troublemakers, and Mickey was arrested for disrupting the police in 1963, shortly after he and Francine had their first date. Francine dropped out of high school in October 1963, and shortly after, she had sex with Mickey for the first time. On November 4, 1963, the pair married at the Dansville Methodist Church and moved in with Mickey's parents. Francine had doubts about the relationship, wondering if she even loved Mickey. A few weeks after they were married, there were visitors to the home. After they left, Mickey took Francine to their bedroom and accused her of looking at the man. She protested that she only looked at his hands because they were so large. In the middle of her protests, Mickey suddenly punched her and knocked her over the bed. She begged him to stop, but he punched her again. His parents intervened, calling the police. Mickey took a swing at one of them, and the police arrested him. Francine walked on eggshells around Mickey, afraid the slightest sound would provoke him into hitting her, which he did once or twice a week. He would watch her carefully and coldly, waiting for her to do something he didn't like. When the beatings began, she would sometimes defend herself, but it would make matters worse and he would often lock her out of the house in the freezing weather. In 1971, Francine visited a social worker who urged her to leave. Francine divorced Mickey, but when he was in a severe car accident shortly after the divorce, she moved back in to take care of him. Many questioned her reasoning for this and Francine explained that when she was a child, she was in charge of watching her three-year-old brother. While helping her mother hang laundry, He ran into the street and was hit by a car and dragged for a distance. Both arms were broken and later their mother blamed Francine for the injuries since she was supposed to be watching him. Therefore, when Mickey had his accident shortly after they had a fight, she felt terribly guilty and agreed to take care of him temporarily. This became a permanent arrangement and she moved into the house next to his parents. Francine said, I just felt like I couldn't hurt him anymore. If you could have seen him, seen the condition he was in when he got out of the hospital, you couldn't do any more to him. Francine's beatings were often witnessed by others. Connie Feldspotch, who went to school with Mickey, said he would brag about it by telling others she was at home, mending herself from the night before. He wouldn't allow Francine to have friends because she didn't need any. Alice Quenby, a neighbor of the Hughes, said Francine was a good mother who was clean and neat. Alice also said, I never heard her swear. She said of Mickey, he drank a lot and when he was drinking, he was very mean. Deborah Brown said she had witnessed beatings as far back as when they were newlyweds and one of them left Francine especially bruised. Donna Johnson, another neighbor, recalled an incident where Mickey beat Francine in his mother's front yard. This time, another male neighbor pulled Mickey off Francine, Donna said Mickey's mother Flossie was present at the time and witnessed the beating. Flossie repeatedly told attorneys and investigators that she never saw Mickey hit Francine, nor had he ever hit her. However, at least twice people saw Mickey strike his mother. A former Ingram County Sheriff's deputy, Muhammad Abdo, responded to the Hughes' home with his partner one night, and the drunk Mickey picked Muhammad up with one hand. They had to have backup break up the fight. Muhammad was no lightweight, weighing in at 225 pounds to Mickey's 200-pound frame. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. When people think of dangerous jobs, the more obvious ones quickly come to mind. Firefighters, law enforcement, oil riggers, but real estate agents are rarely at the forefront. However, realtors often go by themselves to meet strangers, usually in empty houses. There are numerous instances of these meetings going terribly wrong, terribly fast. Some of these are planned, targeted attacks, and others happen in an instant. Okay, on to the show. Sarah Walker was born in Dubuque, Iowa to Joe and Carol Walker in 1966. She was the oldest of three children. While a small child, The Walker family lived in California, Arizona, and El Paso, Texas, before settling in Dallas, Texas. Sarah attended junior high, high school, and college in Dallas. She obtained a master's degree in business and was working on a second master's degree in 2006. Her second master's degree was in theology. She enjoyed her Bible classes and read the Bible often, claiming it gave her motivation and hope. Sarah eventually began leasing apartments before selling homes of prominent builders. She worked in real estate for 20 years, settling for D.R. Horton in McKinney, Texas, a community about 30 minutes outside of Dallas. On July 8, 2006, a man identifying himself as Chan Lee contacted Mamie Sharpless, another real estate agent, who worked for Keller Williams. He explained he had found her contact information in an ad and wanted to look at one of her listings in the Craig Ranch subdivision. Chan Lee gave her quite a bit of information in the brief call. He had just relocated from North Carolina, where he graduated from UNC Charlotte. He had taken a job at Texas Instruments and, while house hunting, was staying at an in-town suites in room 245. Mamie asked him for his number, but after saying he didn't have one, the call abruptly disconnected. Mamie located two in town suites and called both. One did not have a room 245, and in the other, she just got a recording. Mamie later said she had an uneasy feeling about the caller, but wanted to show the home, so she took her husband Nelson with her. They arrived in the subdivision between 11.30 and noon and waited for the potential client. As they waited, they saw an Asian male in a white Ford Mustang pull up and walk towards the house. Nelson asked him if he was Chan Lee, and the man said no. The man was around 5'4 and muscular with a buzz cut. Mamie and Nelson drove around the block and noticed the Mustang had Texas tags. Once they got back to the model home, the Mustang had left. The couple went back to the Keller Williams model home because Mamie had another appointment to show the home. While Nelson was waiting, he saw a Porsche Boxster pull up in front of the D.R. Horton model home and an attractive blonde get out. He told his wife, who said it was another agent, Sarah Walker. Nelson also saw the white Mustang back in the neighborhood. Mamie finished showing the home between 12.30 and 1 o'clock. And as they were leaving, the couple briefly discussed stopping in to say hi to Sarah, but ended up driving off. Around 12.30 p.m., Sarah called her cousin, Jessica Allen, and talked for about 15 minutes. Jessica said Sarah was in a really good mood but hung up, saying someone had walked in and she'd call her back. At 1.10, a couple entered the D.R. Horton model home. When they entered the house, they first noticed it was untidy then saw a large pool of blood near the sales desk. The male followed the trail of blood into the kitchen and discovered Sarah lying face up, covered in blood from the waist up. He told his wife to call 911 and they left the model home. He flagged someone down outside, then went back in to see if Sarah was still alive. She did not appear to be, so he went back outside to wait for emergency services. A Texas Ranger, A.P. Davidson, arrived on the scene and immediately noticed signs of a fight or struggle in the home. A potted plant was on the floor, the desk was out of place, and so was the desk chair. A pair of women's shoes and broken earring were on the floor. Sarah's long skirt was rolled up to her waistline, which caused Ranger Davidson to believe she had been dragged by her feet into the kitchen. Pete Copen, a McKinney police officer, found a bloody fingerprint on the deadbolt, but there were not enough identifying characteristics for it to be usable. He found additional blood on the pool cord for the blinds, on the wall, and on the plant stand. He also found round drops of blood on the floor. Investigators spoke to Randy Tate, Sarah's recent ex-husband, who had seen her the morning of the murder. He had picked up their three-year-old son before she had to go to work. While there, Sarah showed him the new Rolex she had recently purchased. Sarah loved jewelry and had a Tag Heuer watch that she had worn for several years. She also wore large rings and the morning of her murder, she was seen in bank surveillance video wearing a large ring and a Rolex. When she was found a few hours later, her watch and ring were both missing. An autopsy was performed on Sarah, and it was determined that she was struck on the head numerous times. The medical examiner believed it happened with the plant stand found in the model home. Sarah had several bruises on her face and head, a broken nose and broken teeth. She fought her attacker as evidenced by the defensive wounds she suffered, including a wound on her arm and a broken fingernail. She had been stabbed 33 times in total, and 10 of those had penetrated vital organs and veins. The medical examiner said any of these 10 wounds could have caused death almost immediately. Sarah also had a bite mark on her neck, which occurred at or near the time of death. Unfortunately, the case hit several roadblocks for almost two months. Investigators initially focused on her ex-husband, Randy Tate, but he was soon cleared. They also reviewed her account on Millionaire Matchmaker, an online dating site, but no viable leads came from the website. Sarah's sister, Jackie Mole said she did not believe her sister had met anyone on the site because she remembered Sarah complaining about having to pay a fee to see profiles. After several weeks, Nelson called the police, realizing he might have vital information from his exchange with the Asian male driving the white Mustang. After talking with them and providing them with all he could recall, they asked if he would consent to be hypnotized, to possibly remember more details. Once he was hypnotized, he was able to describe the Asian male to a sketch artist. Once the sketch was released to the public, another realtor contacted the police. She had rented a home to the man in the sketch. Also, he once came to her home to use her phone, She would not let him in and he became extremely irate and started banging on her back door. She contacted the police during this incident, which led police being able to identify this man as Kasul Chantakaman. They soon discovered he drove a white Mustang. He was a delivery truck driver and had a criminal record. Kasul's parents were from Laos, but he had been born in the United States In 1997, while only 15 or 16 years old, he and two other teenagers were arrested for tying up two elderly women and stealing a car. Kasul and the other male fled the scene when stopped by a deputy, but the girl was arrested at the scene. Kasul was charged with two counts of armed robbery and second-degree kidnapping, one count of breaking and entering, larceny, and a possession of a stolen vehicle. When he was arrested on September 5, 2006, he had only been out on parole for six months. He had moved to Texas from North Carolina after being paroled because his sister lived there. Kasul was arrested at his apartment, which was just a few miles from the payphone used to call Maney. When he was arrested, officers noted he had a shaved head and what appeared to be healed cuts or scratches on his hands and fingers. Officers photographed these injuries along with regular headshots. Molds of his teeth were also taken to compare the bite wound. When questioned, Casol first denied ever being in McKinney. He then said his car broke down in the neighborhood of the model home and that he entered the model home just taking a few steps inside, calling out to see if anyone was there. When no one answered, he left. He said as he left, he spoke to a man and a woman in a green or blue Toyota, either a Corolla or Camry. He changed his story again and said that he was thirsty, so he went into the kitchen of the model home to get a drink. He said only hot water came out, so he guessed he didn't know how to work it. During the first interview, he asked for a lawyer, and that ended the interview. Upon subsequent interviews, he changed his story to... It was a robbery that went wrong. Kassoul was initially assigned a public defender until the courts determined his income was too high. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Medterra is one of the leading CBD brands in the industry with a full line of functional CBD products. Staying healthy nowadays means watching your overall well-being, sleep, stress, and your overall health. You should prioritize easy ways to boost your immunity, and Medterra is legal in all 50 states, and you won't get high. It's basically everything you need for daily immune support in one convenient bottle to keep you protected all day long, no matter where you are. In the past, I've always thought of immunity products as something that you take once you start to feel run down, but being proactive about it is so important right now. They sent me some of it a few weeks ago and I've been using it as part of my daily routine. I feel more refreshed, less groggy and have better mental clarity. I love that it has a great taste and their dedication to quality and especially that they have zero THC. I was skeptical of CBD products before, and I think this product could be good for anyone who's really needing that immune boost. Medterra was developed with leading immunologists and medical doctors. It's a natural combination of CBD, vitamin C, elderberry, echinacea, and ginger root, all scientifically proven to boost your immunity, in addition to Medterra's high-quality CBD extract. So if you want to give it a try, visit medterracbd.com. And enter code TCFC at checkout to receive 20% off. That's M E D T E R R A C B D.com. And enter code TCFC at checkout to receive 20% off. Kasul was charged with capital murder, and his trial began in October 2007. During the trial, prosecutors brought in a mannequin dressed with Sarah's bloody clothing. Kasul's attorney told the jury at the beginning of the trial to remember execution are reserved for only the worst of the worst, and his client was not a threat to society. Witnesses for the state testified that Kasul's DNA matched the DNA found in the model home including the blood on the deadbolt, blood on the blinds, and in the sink. The dental mold of his teeth matched the wound on Sarah's neck. On October 10, 2007, after a mere 30 minutes, the jury found Kasul guilty of capital murder. He was sentenced to death and in 2017 had a date set for his execution, July 19, 2017. However, on June 7, 2017, the Texas Court of Appeals issued a stay of execution and sent his case back to the Collin County Trial Court to review claims of discredited forensic science. In 2018, Casol and Charles Don Flores, another Texas death row inmate, began pushing for the state of Texas to ban forensic hypnosis in criminal cases, claiming it is junk science. Sarah was 40 when her life was violently and abruptly stolen from her. She left behind two children, siblings, her parents, and countless friends who enjoyed her company and always felt special while being with her. Unfortunately, Sarah's murder did little to change the way realtors responded to potential sales. Another unfortunate and brutal murder of a realtor occurred in Wisconsin in 2008. On March 18, 2008, Anne Nelson, 71, a realtor with Remax, was showing a home in Oakland, Wisconsin. When she did not return home that night, her family called the police, who went to the home she was showing. When they noticed smoke coming from the home, they went inside and found Anne in a bedroom next to a smoldering mattress. It didn't take long for police to hone in on a suspect, Within days, they had questioned James A. Hole, who was a potential buyer who called Anne. While viewing the home, Anne questioned James as to why he was looking at a home he had no intention or means to purchase, and this enraged James, who attacked her. He choked her with her own scarf and beat her with the fireplace poker, then left the house. He returned to the house to find that Anne was still alive So he set a box of tissues on fire and placed it near the bed. He closed the door and left again. James A. Hole, 34, was a drifter and convicted sex offender. During the course of the investigation, James admitted to attacking another woman in LaGrange Park, Illinois. He confessed to LaGrange Park Police Detective Fran Morocco that he had attacked Mary Elmsley a retired school teacher on January 4, 2008. He had knocked her to the concrete floor and then stolen $300 from her purse. She was found unconscious in her garage and sustained massive head injuries. James was charged with first-degree intentional homicide, arson, and burglary with the intent to commit sexual assault in Ann Nelson's murder. He was held on a $1 million bond in Jefferson County, Wisconsin. LaGrange Police Department held off charging him until the case against him in Wisconsin was done. James Hole pleaded no contest to the murder charges, and in return, the arson and two burglary charges were dropped. On January 26, 2009, he was found guilty of first-degree intentional murder and sentenced to life without parole. He is currently serving his sentence at the Green Bay Correctional Institution. Ann Nelson had three sons and three daughters, and 16 grandchildren. Her son said, quote, She was always willing to help. No task was ever too difficult. She had worked for RE-MAX for years. On her page of the agency's website, she had written, Church and community are important aspects in my life, and it is rewarding to be involved in situations to help others who have needs. After Ann Nelson's violent death, realtors began buddying up, taking more safety precautions. Unfortunately, realtors continue to be easy targets. Troy Vanderselt was murdered later in 2008 by an unhappy client who thought he had been cheated by Troy. Beverly Carter was murdered in 2014 by Aaron Lewis, who called Beverly about a house. In 2009, Ricardo Contreras was found stabbed to death on a property he was showing in California. Ironically, his sister had conned an elderly couple by convincing them to sell their investment properties below the market value, then sold the properties for top dollar. When she was confronted, she hit the elderly male with a hammer 18 times, then attacked his bedridden wife with a razor. She then set the house on fire, Real estate is hard work and not the glamorous career many believe. If you are a realtor, please take all precautions and meet with unknown clients in your office for the first time. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, Please be sure to leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms: Twitter at TCFC Facebook.com slash TCFC Podcast, Instagram at Club Pod, and of course our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at WeTalkOfDreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. While you're waiting for the next episode, check out some of my pod friends' shows.
2: Hey folks, this is Augie Peterson. You might know me from my short horror fiction on the Grey Rooms in Aphotic Realm magazine, or from my podcast, The Short Stories of Augie Peterson. Today I'm here to tell you about a new audio drama I'm writing, editing, producing, and starring in. Linda Listens. Excuse me? Oh, hey Linda. I, I thought you had a nail appointment today. Well, I was about to when I happened to hear some misinformation come out of that pretty little mouth of yours. What do you mean, your podcast? Well, I I wrote it, so it's mine? Is my name not Linda? Am I not listening to the problems my Twitter followers send me and doing my best to answer their questions and solve their problems? It's my show hun. You better get that straight the next time you go talking into that fancy-dancy microphone you got there. Sorry about that, folks. Linda Listens is the tale of Linda, a middle-aged woman in search of meaning after the tragic death of her family. Once she meets her raucous neighbor, the meaning she finds may be more sinister than she'd hoped for. What the hell are you talking about? What sinister meaning? (sighs) Linda... What do you know that I don't? And how you... Get to know before me what's going to happen on my show. You are a fictional character. You can't own a podcast. It's my show. I wrote it. Fictional. Fictional. Oh, I'll show you. Mm -hmm. Fictional. you What's the? Fictional. Linda. Ah. Fucking. That's my hair. Linda listens. You. Hurry. Howdy podcast from Augie Peterson. <sighs> now streaming wherever you find a podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You caverno oh, fear. I'm going to <laughs> my nail appointment. No, oh, fuck yeah. Screw you. Try not to curse. Try not to
1: We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, one strange thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: When something happens to your car...